0: Good Friday evening, everyone. We've made it through another week. But then again, the older we get, the weeks go by fast, regardless of the season. Even though that's not something we have control over, it's just what it is. However, it's up to us as individuals on how we choose to exercise our time. Well, tonight we resume back to another uh, segment of History 101 podcast on the Boston Massacre, or should I say, Dan Abrams' novel, John Adams Under Fire. Last night, we talked about the the victims, the five victims who were shot by the British on the night of March 5, 1770. Tonight, we're going to discuss about the soldiers who were involved on that infamous night. Their names are the following... Matthew Kilroy, Hugh White, Hugh Montgomery, William Wemms, James Hardigan, William McCauley, William Warren, John Carroll. All eight men served under the command of their captain, Thomas Preston, the 29th Regiment of Foot. It is safe to say... Or not so much safe to say, but it is an accurate um, fact that all eight of these soldiers had come from poor families. As I said towards the, towards the end of last night's podcast, that the vast majority of the British soldiers serving under the crown did in fact come from lower ranks of society, and the age ranges were primarily between the ages of 17 to 25, especially among these eight soldiers. However, one in particular named Hugh White, by the time he arrives to Boston, is right around the age of 30 with 11 years of service. For many of these men, their goal is to make the military a long-term commitment. However, in order for that to... In order for that to be um, a realistic goal, they have to work their way up the, up the ladder. And a majority of your enlisted British soldiers did lack formal education, whereas those of, from the higher social classes, being the British officers, had better access to education. But we will get to them here in a little bit. What I do know is this, is that the other than the fact that the majority of your enlisted British soldiers, despite lacking formal education, when they came to Boston, that is the 2,000 troops that arrived in 1768, many of them did find some form of success in obtaining part-time work in the city of Boston. While the While there were others who struggled to find work in large part because they met with, um, what do you call it, resentment among the locals. In other words, the locals were not just so much natives to Boston, but they had already established themselves within the community to where um, giving an an outsider a job whom they they were automatically seen as the enemy just didn't seem to go well hand in hand. So... Is it safe to say that a majority of soldiers were married from England? It is true that they were. And it's ironic to say that a majority of these soldiers actually brought their families to Boston. But then again, it would make sense to do something like that. Think about it. In the 18th century, you don't have, there are no such things as airplanes. And for many of these soldiers, they weren't sure just how long their enlistment would last or how many years of commitment they would need to be dedicated to. So if you, were, if you had enough money, you could bring your family with you regardless of where you were stationed. After all, the British Army, or I should say the British Empire, is at the might of or I should say, at the height of its reign around the world. So not all of the king's um, soldiers fighting for the crown are stationed in colonial America. They are stationed in various other parts of the world. But in 1768, you have a presence of 2,000 British soldiers in Boston. And as you, well can, as you can well imagine, this, this is going to bring lots of uh, tension. And conflict. Well, one thing it is safe to say is that many of your soldiers who came from England turned out to be actually of the Irish Catholic faith. In other words, not everyone came from England. You have to remember, England reigned over Ireland and Scotland during this time, so it's very likely that the vast majority of troops came from Scotland, and Ireland to serve under the king's crown. Those who were single, not all British troops who came over here, were married. There were a large number of them who were single. It turns out that the the, the vast majority of the single men were known to frequent prostitutes and take up with local women. Well, I hate to say this, but I have known it for some time, it turns out that prostitution is the oldest profession in the world and it would, I could see how uh, it would be very easy for, a, um, an, uh, well, for anybody in the British Army to get caught up in a bad moment, to let their guard down and decide to flirt with someone of a lower class being that of a prostitute. I know it's not right to judge. But, we've often referred, seen uh, um, women as prostitutes as being in low-class society. So, how do the British officers and those below come hand-in-hand? Hand? Well, as mentioned earlier, the British officers came from higher social classes. In other words, they came from the well-to-do ranks of society. They were able to purchase their commissions, And not just purchase their commissions, but these were lifetime commissions. For many of the British um, officers who were from well-to-do rankings in society, they had spent a number of years earning their ranks. They probably did start out in the lowest of ranks, going from private to corporal to working their way up to colonel, lieutenant colonel, colonel to general, and even to major. The bottom line is, there was opportunity for men to work their way up into the ranks of the British military. But it, all, but it also came down to connections and accessibility. So for those soldiers below, meaning those who are privates, if they were found to get out of line, the most common form of harsh discipline were whippings. And it turns out that there were many desertions in the British Army during the time that they came to Boston in 1768. There were a handful of British troops who did uh, develop relations with women. And as mentioned earlier from a previous podcast, podcast, that there were a fair number of British troops who did marry into Boston society, most notably within the ranks of those who who were local business people who still had ties to the crown. But when British troops did get out of line, not just by means of desertion, there were public whippings. These public whippings were meant to serve as a deterrent to prevent others from getting out of line. I'm not sure what the overall percentage was, but there were a few cases where British soldiers were put to death in public because of their inappropriate act- activities this was seen as a last resort when everything else had failed it's kind of like how in colonial times even leading up to the war itself or even leading up to the massacre how if one misbehaved in public such as stealing a person's horse or a person's belonging like tools it would have been considered theft, or in the case of stealing a horse, horse theft. What was primarily the typical punishment for an individual to be branded? And in the case of theft, that individual would have had a T on their hand or on their thumb. And as we all know, if that person really um, messed up big time a second time, it would have often meant death. So, it's safe to say even in the British military, the high-ranking officers did not have a whole lot of room for misbehavior. They also didn't have a whole lot of time for people to uh, be testing the waters to where the inevitable would happen, such as getting hung. So, is it safe to say even when the British were trying to make themselves hospitable in Boston society, that there was conflict from from the get-go absolutely it's safe to say that the lower ranks of British society in terms of the uh, soldiers were often found to be clashing with the with the regulars in this case meaning the citizens of Boston those who expo- those who expressed vehement opposition to their presence and these were not and these ranged from just the 10 not just from 101 scuffles but to brawls in on several blocks of, of Boston, not just from one part, but to countless other blocks of streets that connected to one another where people engaged in fights. And we're not just talking grown-ups who got into fights. Historians know that youngsters between the ages of 10 and 15 were known to get into fights with British troops. Now, to me, I was kind of blown away by the young age groups getting involved in scuffles. But then again, 10- and 15-year-olds at this time have a lot to do in society. They're not sitting at home all day twirling their thumb doing nothing. They're out doing work, whether it's working on, a, on the farm or even running errands to help, say, a family member out who's working in the shipping industry. They're doing something. They know what's going on in their community. But they also know that if something is wrong and a a person is being threatened by someone from the outside, like the British, they know that they have an opportunity to say enough is enough. Well, the historians know that um, a couple of months before the massacre, between a month or two in the very beginning of 1770, that a young boy named Christopher Sider was sadly gunned down by a hand, by a group of British uh, troops. Christopher Sider and a, and a group of his um, friends felt it was okay to vandalize a loyalist's uh, business shop. But in return, it wasn't so much that they were, it resulted in broken windows. The loyalists meaning the head shopkeeper and his um, partners tracked the young boy down, being uh, young Christopher Sider, and killed him. This was perhaps the beginning of what would ultimately lie ahead that led to what happened on the night of March 5th. All it takes is a few incidents to to make things become so severe to where any ability to reason... Is just no longer is no longer doable. There really was no plan from the get-go for the British troops. They thought they had a plan to restore order, but every time they did, it just never worked. So, it's one thing to have a, a, a what we might call in 18th century terms a standing army come in and try to to restore order. But restoring order is no easy task, even when you have 2,000 of your best soldiers in terms of the world's best army. Even they themselves are not the best match for dealing with rabble in their eyes, because rabble is not always low class. It just might mean that, that rabble, in the case of an unruly mob, they may just not have the right voice in government but as mentioned from the previous night, they still had the proper means to mobilize to get their word out. So, how does um, where, where does John Adams fit into all this? I will talk more about John Adams in another night in another session. But I think one question many of you all are probably itching to know is where was John Adams on the night of March fifth, seventeen seventy? Well, I can tell you this. Based off of uh, Dan Abrams' book, John Adams Under Fire, I learned that John Adams himself was at a friend's house. The night of March 5th was a very cold night in Boston. As you can very well imagine, winter had not come to an official end. It was still very cold outside. There was snow, and there was a thick sheet of ice on the ground. So Adams is over in the south end of the city, What we might think of then as a town, but that's up to us to decide whether it was a town or a city. But I I would prefer city because by 1770, Boston is the third largest city in colonial America with 20,000 people. So what does that tell you right there? That's a good sign of prosperity when you have a large group of people who are contributing to the good of society, especially in the shipbuilding industry. So John Adams is at a friend's house, obviously talking about law, talking about topics that men would find interesting. And remember this too, it was okay for a man to be out at night visiting friends, but we must remember that it would have been considered a red flag for a woman to be out walking the streets at night going to a friend's house. Um To some that would have been seen as an issue. women, not to get off track or anything here, but women you know could visit you know their lady friends, but it would have been pre- more preferable for a woman to have done it in broad daylight versus in the middle of the night and so remember. There were uh, boundaries even in the 18th century as to uh, proper etiquette rules as to what was acceptable and and not. But as for John Adams, he was at a friend's house on the night of March 5th. He heard the bells ring, and any time a bell rung, nine times out of ten, that meant that there was a fire. So John Adams did, like what any other person, responsible citizen of Boston would have done, was gotten up from where he was and went immediately into town to find out what the problem was, assuming it was a fire. Well, 99.9% of the time, the, with the bells ringing, it would have meant there was a fire. How ironic, on this night, there was no fire. What John Adams witnessed was people lying on the ground Either dead or severely wounded. He witnessed a group of redcoats, meaning British soldiers, defending their um, area under tight knit quarters. He would have seen, he would have heard people moaning and groaning as a result of being um, hit with a bayonet. Not just so much perhaps getting stabbed in the chest with a bayonet, but just receiving blunt force. Uh, trauma from the back of a rifle or just the tip of a bayonet. Now remember, people, bayonets are dangerous. Um, they're da- not so much a tool, but they're a dangerous um, mechanism on a rifle, 18 inches long. And as I've learned from having visited Colonial Williamsburg many times, a bayonet was often seen as the last resort when. When a unit has pretty much annihilated the opposition, they know the opposition is in a state of disarray. Nine times out of ten, that unit would get its bayonets fixed to where they would just go about finishing off the opposition when all else has been achieved. So in this case scenario, after the shots had been fired, the bayonets had been fixed to where people were running and screaming, the bayonets really were a measure to say, hey, we've got you in the corner. We're not going to fire perhaps anymore, but we're going to finish you off with the bayonets. If that doesn't frighten you, I don't know what will. So John Adams saw chaos on that night. He was concerned, but what he was more concerned about was the well-being of his family, So basically, he didn't stay outside very long. He went back home right away to his wife, Abigail, and children. And a little side information to note is that prior to March 5th, it had been a rough year for the Adams family at this point. John and Abigail were fine, but they had just recently lost a child. And as as any of us can imagine, in the 18th century, It was very, very common for many families to have multiple children. If a family had ten children, you would hope that five or six made it to adulthood. Many children died from infancy, died in infancy, I should say, from various diseases. So for John Adams, having just lost a child was a very, very tough um, ordeal to overcome. But one thing I can say is that the day after the massacre, he was found right back at his law office at work that That takes a lot right there, but of course, on the night of March sixth on the day of March sixth, he had no idea really what was in store. He knew that a tragedy had happened, but he didn't realize what the scope was. I can tell you this: John Adams was not the first person to be asked to represent. The accused two other members or lawyers I should say were asked to represent and they turned it down so there were anxious people wanting to know who was going to take on these eight soldiers and even if they found the right person to take on the eight soldiers would any kind of order be restored to the city well and when, we, when I pick up next on my podcast with you all, we will talk more about John Adams, not just so much as to why he chose to represent the eight soldiers, but what a skilled lawyer he was. And think about this, people. In colonial days, while, yes, you had lawyers, but not every town had a law office, not every town had a lawyer, That's why lawyers rode the circuit. Think about it. It was very common for lawyers like John Adams to travel 20 miles out of town to represent people. There were were no such things as as law firms as uh, Tronfeld West and Durrett. There was no McGuire Woods. There was no um, Hunting and Williams. Of course, those law firms are here in Virginia, but just remember, there was not a multitude of law firms. You would have been lucky if you had one law office that could have catered to three or five towns. But John Adams was, in fact, a very skilled lawyer. He was a copious note-taker. He thrived on conflict. So perhaps it was best that John Adams himself did represent the accused. I can tell you this much too he didn't do it for political reasons he wasn't looking for what we might call today 15 minutes of fame he did it because he knew that a story had to be told he loved boston he loved massachusetts he was an ardent um he was an ardent what we could still say an ardent patriot but he didn't believe in resorting to violence as a way to resolve the problems. He was close, he was dear friends with many of those who were on the Sons of Liberty, like Joseph, Dr. Joseph Warren, James Otis, John Hancock, Sam Adams. And if, you'd like, if any of you are curious to know, are John Adams and Sam Adams related? Well, the answer is yes, they are related. They were both second cousins. Sam Adams was an ardent patriot, just like his cousin was, but John Adams felt it was best to resolve matters through, the, through means of, of turning to law. In other words, let's go to court to try to resolve the case, to resolve the matter at dispute, so that each party involved can walk away benefiting from something rather than having one side destroy the other. John Adams, on the other hand, um, made it a priority to not burn bridges. While, yes, he may have disagreed with certain things that his friends from the Sons of Liberty were doing, he never once publicly criticized them to the point of... um, ruining uh, relationships and why is that because as we as we will realize in the years after 1770 he and his friends who were a a part of that Sons of Liberty movement had no other choice but to band together to um, to unite as one but of course unification is something that even the people of Boston are wanting at this time The bigger questions that lie at stake is how to go about resolving a matter that has deeply shaken the city. And not just shaken this Boston, but has shaken the other colonies and their inhabitants and the towns and cities. In other words, will everybody be on the same page? And will and if not, then how can we? How can the thirteen colonies colonies be united? So, that is all that I'm going to share for tonight. But I look forward to sharing next time about John Adams, not just as a lawyer, but but what he did as a lawyer in terms of what kind of matters he um, dealt with. You know, in his day, I'll just say this. He didn't concentrate on one area of law. He concentrated on a multitude of areas that benefited clients from all angles of life. And and it's safe to say that um, all of his work that led up to the Boston Massacre trials paid off because, as stated before, we have John Adams to thank for our modern-day uh, system system of uh, American law but then again if if I give away too much now there may not be a need to even have an upcoming podcast for another night on this but anyways thank you for listening stay safe and have a good weekend and I will uh, look forward to chatting with you all again here soon within the next uh, few days good night